Hello, welcome to Dustbusters, your inseparable companion podcast to His Dark Materials. I'm Jake Cunningham, and I've been caged up with these books for a long, long time. And I'm Louisa Maycock. I've been caged up with Jake for a long, long time, but I've never read a single one of these books. Dustbusters is supported by Penguin Random House. They're the publishers of Philip Pullman's work. If you can't wait to see how His Dark Materials ends and then continues Lyra's journey, then The Book of Dust, The Secret Commonwealth, which is set after the Dark Materials novels, is out now in hardback, ebook, and audio, which is read by Michael Sheen. Now, this week, helping us bust some dust for an episode that covers so much in such a short space of time, we couldn't ask for a better guest than Sam Clements, cinema marketing maestro and host of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival podcast, the show all about cramming in as much information as possible into the shortest space of time. I, I do appreciate when stories uh, yeah, can really use their runtime to tell you know, this epic tale and not keep us sat in our seats for too long. Mm-hmm. And this show is doing that every single week, so I'm very thrilled to be on here. Yeah, I mean, like under an hour, that's the dream for you. I mean, absolutely. We we haven't had many films under an hour. So the whole point of the show is that it's films that tell a story uh, in 90 minutes or less. But it doesn't have to. Don't just work to the wire, guys. It doesn't have to be 89 minutes. If you've got a 61 minute movie, I'm here for it. Really, the length of films do, it really does matter quite a lot to me. Yeah, I mean, I could watch My Life as a Courgette five times if instead of watching The Irishman. Absolutely. And frankly, I, I, think I, you I could be convinced to do so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's a really interesting sort of psychology with, um, especially when you see these films in a cinema, I, I've learned, like, when My Life as a Courgette came out, uh, my uh, you know, marketing maestro job, um, we had customers saying, oh, so is it a cheaper ticket? And and likewise with The Irishman, um, because it is quite long, I've seen some cinemas are actually charging more to watch it uh, in, in on the big screen. Oh um, so there is this sort of weird, like, the economy of time as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, well, I suppose we're all so busy yeah. nowadays. Uh, well, thanks to our license fee, of course, we don't have to pay anything to watch this one, do we? And we can enjoy it from the comfort of our sofa. Um, this is episode six, The Demon Cages, uh, which we'll get into in just a bit. But uh, I do like to check in at the start of these episodes about uh, our guest's relationship to his dark materials. Uh, obviously, they differ from week to week. We've got fresh newbies sometimes and then diehards the next week. Sam, where are you on the scale? So I'm... I guess I'm I'm like a legacy fan of the book. I wasn't there when the books were first published, um, but I discovered them when I was about 17, uh, and I met my now wife, uh, who was a big fan of these books, and I think she just finished reading them, and uh, she gave me a copy, and it was sort of like boyfriend homework. (laughs) Had to read these books, and and I really loved them. It was amazing homework. Um, And I remember being so hooked reading them. I was doing a summer job... Uh, in my hometown of Bristol, where I had about a 20-minute walk to work, and I was reading a book whilst walking to work, which is, it just feels like a recipe for disaster. But uh, I didn't get hit by a truck or anything. I made it to work every single day, and I was there just like going through Golden Compass, going through Subtle Knife in paperback, really lengthy, like phone book-sized books, uh, whilst walking down the street, just glued. Um, and I, I was uh, every sort of break I had in my, my Saturday job, I was reading. Those 15 minutes just went so quickly. Um, so yeah, I was at 
absolutely hooked and then and then nothing because it took Philip Pullman such a long time <laughs> to write any sort of follow-ups and I'm glad he's done them now um, so yeah I had a very intense relationship with them when I first discovered them and they've always been sort of a favorite book of mine and I've, I've recommended them to so many people mm. Um, it's interesting you mentioned how, how long it takes um, prior to doing the podcast I was listening to very old interviews with Pullman um, I found an old Radio 4 one from t- like 2005 and he mentioned oh yes I'm writing the book of dust now like, well well glad you got to that 12 years after you recorded this um, I am very glad actually um, Louis I, uh, you might not remember this but I think in terms of couples bringing these books together we were we were on a uh, a holiday, I think, in Somerset, and I don't know. That was know how... a lovely holiday. Yeah, we, had, that... we stayed in that nice um, converted cow shed. Yeah, that must have been about four years ago, yes. and I remember I had my copy of Amber Spyglass with me at that point, and it's just great to go on the lovely celebratory couples romantic getaway. It's like I'm, I'm just going to read this book. I don't remember that. What I do remember <laughs> is there was, you know, when you go and you rent a holiday cottage, and they tend to have you know, um, a collection of board games. Do you remember which board game we played? I don't. What did we play? Yeah, you do. You remember. I don't. It was, um, oh, who's, what's his name? The really tanned guy who does auction. David Dickinson. David Dickinson's. Who I've met. It was like David Dickinson's <laughs> top trumps or something. He's in every Airbnb or, or <laughs> B&B in a, yeah, in sort of a countryside location. Don't uh, you remember that? I don't remember this at all. Oh, it's when oh. I was still doing yoga every day and I actually bought my yoga mat. Wow. Well, different lives we've lead, but yeah. obviously we still cherish David Dickinson. Well, I remember around the same time as I was reading these books, <laughs> David Dickinson did a book signing at my local Waterstones <laughs> Bristol and I don't know why I think me and my friends thought it'd be funny if we went but there is a picture of me somewhere on Facebook with David Dickinson (laughs) um, for a book signing wow David Dickinson and Dark Materials bringing people together I should have got him to sign my copy of uh, Golden Compass that that would have been a niche bit of memorabilia what a crossover yes um, we need to bring that together bring him into season two I think (laughs) all right now we must move on to episode six the demon cages. So last week we saw Lyra and the Egyptians on the path to Bolvangar, which is the station where all the kidnapped kids are being kept. Uh, after reading the alethiometer, Lyra and Yorick Bernison, the polar bear, went on an excursion to an Arctic village where they met Billy Costa, who is one of these missing kids. Um, but he was barely alive as he had had his demon cut from him. Uh, they managed to get him back to the Egyptians where he died with his Ma, Ma Costa, and Tony Costa, his brother, after which Lyra was kidnapped herself and taken to Bolvangar. And obviously now we have the events that are happening in our world as well, uh, where we met Will Parry and his mum, how he cares for her during her mental health troubles, and his curiosities about his father, John Parry, who disappeared 13 years ago, unbeknownst to Will, of course, disappearing into Lyra's world. So a lot happening last week, very bleak episode last week. Um, However, this time, Lyra has a reunion with Roger, who was her best friend who was kidnapped in episode one. We're finally coming back to that. Um, And her mother, Mrs. Coulter, There's a cunning escape, a battle, and a very turbulent hot air balloon fight. Uh, This is absolutely a busy episode. There's a lot happening here. 
um, but we will start at the station uh, now. Last week, when asked of her identity, Lyra said she was, of course, Lizzie Brooks. Mm-hmm. Instantly saying that. That's very canny of Lyra. That's very much true to her character. Um, and that leads to her investigating the station. And we learn a lot more about what is happening to the kids there. So I want to ask you guys, what do we think of this station? What do we think of what's happening to the kids, to their demons? How do we feel in the first 20 minutes of this episode? Uh, it's, uh, it's it's not a great place to be <laughs> with your demons. I love how, I think the design of this station is, is incredible. Uh, I think they've really, it's not how I imagined it when I read the books, but they've got this, it's like a whole new level of bleakness, um, which I'm really enjoying. I love how sort of decrepit and monotone everything it's is. It's quite Soviet. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. It's very brutalist, minimalist, mm-hmm. um, just lots and lots of blank concrete. And just the particularly evil choice of making a lot of the connecting hallways outdoors in the snow Mm. even though everyone's just in pajamas like no if you want to get from this door to that door you're gonna have to actually go out into the arctic weather Mm -hmm. i was wondering why they did that but then later in the episode when the battle happens you see why they designed it that way so some major characters could actually be involved in those scenes (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i i do think the the look of the place is fantastic um and very different to how it was represented in the golden compass as well from what i remember it was it was as much as it was horrible it was quite grand Mm. and much larger scale and this feels more like the covert secretive operation that you would actually expect it to be considering the actions that are being uh well executed in there and what do we make of those, uh, Louis? I know you're you're very fond of the relationship between children and their demons, mm-hmm. as we as we will every episode hunt for your demon. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you make of the child cutting? I mean, it's probably the most appalled I've been throughout the entire series so far. I mean, it's it's like the worst possible thing, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I was I was gasping. I was, I wrote in my notes, my gosh, this is upsetting. Well, and I think that was, this is the first episode that you've watched by yourself as well. Yeah, exactly. Which probably didn't help. Exactly, yeah. And I sort of try not to watch it alone because I quite enjoy, it's a nice thing we can do together every week. But um, just logistics meant that we had to watch it separately. And um, I was (laughs) making myself dinner whilst watching it. And I actually burnt my jacket potato because I was so invested and I didn't want to pause it to go and get out the oven. So, um... Yeah, I mean, you know me, I'm a big fan of Roger. I was pleased to see him. and But, you know, it's sad to see that he's changed. Yeah, And, you he, know, it's more than just a haircut that's changed him. <laughs> um, Sam, as, a, as someone who's read the original trilogy and is aware of just how important that relationship is between humans and demons, how do you feel that the the station and what it stands for, what it's been doing was represented here i think the show this episode did a really good job structurally sort of showing uh after we have that lovely roger we should talk about that some more the roger reunion scene uh seeing what happens when they take a child away into 
the, the you know the machine and they, they sort of treat it a bit like a monster in that they don't show you the machine first of all they just show you the door and they close the mm. door and whatever happens is so powerful it takes all the power out around it and you see the reaction on the nurse's face when it's happening uh, and, and they're really building up the tension for you whatever's behind that door is very very bad um, we've already seen what happens in the show when a child loses their demon um, so you're now starting to join the dots oh that's how Billy Costa became mm. like that. Okay. And then um, it lets the audience like brain work. And I, I think they do a really good job of let's not show everybody everything up front. Let's let you mull on this horrific thing we've, we've designed um, and you can fill in the gaps. And, and yeah, I think it is, it's, it's a really brilliant, horrific display of, of what's going on there. Cause it makes it that much more visceral. Mm. Yeah. Um, Let's let's dive into how Lyra and Co interact with the station. Then, um, as we begin the episode, she's already, as we are in a way, investigating dust. Uh, she is doing what we've seen her do before: is she's always balancing her uh, investigative skills with her innocence and uh, kind of the childlike favor she can curry from adults as mm. well. Uh, we've seen her do it with. Um, grown-ups with Mrs. Coulter kind of saying, is this about dust? But then brushing it off as well. Um, and so she's asking whether or not the process that they're up there, this splitting of children and their demons, is to do with dust. She asks the doctor, he's like, well, what is that? What, what do you know about that? And he says, oh, no, it's fine. I wash regularly. So she knows it is about dust, but she's lulling them into a false sense of security. Um, but from the doctor, from his colleagues we get a bit from their perspective and their conversations and it's something that's explored is something that I really like about the books in the way that they blur the languages of science and religion um, this is a philosophical establishment mm. and so science can be experimental theology um, science in in our own world centuries ago was a, was a philosophy as well um, and the conversations about doubt. You doubt the value of what we're doing up here. These are conversations that as much as they might exist in a laboratory, they are conversations that might exist in a chapel or a convent mm -hmm. as well. Mm. And I really like seeing that on screen as well, that they're not shying away from that. The investigation into the church and the allegory of that was something that the film did shy away from even mention not mentioning the church as a name um but we're we're really leaning into that slim barrier between religion and science here which i was very excited to see and there is a lot of heavier imagery that is going on around the site as well this is not just a, a random lab that we're seeing this is there is certain imagery and allegory from our own historical context that is certainly being explored as well mm -hmm. Definitely. I think the thing that came to mind when I was watching it is that I think the nods towards the Holocaust are very strong. I mean, the boy in the striped pyjamas, these children having their heads shaved. Um, it's sort of, it's difficult to ignore that. Yeah, and we mentioned those um, corridors and driveways just being filled with snow and drifting through that and the kids being made to walk mm. through that that is certainly something that's being leaned in towards and the way that the adults are wanting to 
basically manipulate what in this world is the genetics mm. of the children. Yeah. Um, and it had, a lot of the imagery reminded me of uh, a, another BBC project that I think leaned into some of that imagery as well, um, which was, I don't know, Sam, whether you watched Torchwood Children of Earth. Yeah, I did actually. And and the uh, director of this episode also directed lots of Torchwood, yeah. Russ Lynn. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he directed all of Children of Earth and particularly the the children uh, that are in that episode that appear like so so gaunt and exploited by the experimentation of aliens mm. in that series certainly share some similarities to the children we see in this one mm. as well. Um, but God, yeah, some of it is, is rough to watch. Um, so that means that when there is something light, like a snowball fight conducted by Lyra and Roger, that is necessary. We need a moment like that. And it's a reminder of the, the chaos and fun that those two did have together, which is something that, Louis, you had been waiting to well, see. Well, it was such a relief when the camera finds Roger, when he's sitting, having, is it during the dinner scene? You sort of almost go, oh. But yeah, you do realise that he's been through a lot and it's not going to be the same. Just because, again, by this point, I, I think it's really good they didn't make us wait too long for Roger because yeah. we had quite a heavy last episode. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's a bit of like a reward for us, the audience. Mm-hmm. Ah, Roger's back. But we also, in our minds, we're thinking all of that time Lyra's been looking for him. You know, again, we've seen the outcome of this place. Roger's seen some stuff. Because really, Roger is her family. Um, I think you really get the sense of that in that ep- in this episode. I think they hug... And there's that lovely shot where they're both their demons, they're hugging and then both their demons are sitting sort of in front of them. Yeah. And we mentioned uh, in last week's episode about the Egyptian community that Lyra's been staying with and just how much familial bonds can extend beyond the DNA that people might share and mm-hmm. how tight that community is. Um and I think Lyra is certainly learning from that and bringing that to her relationship with Roger and seeing just how important that friendship is and how valuable that can be for her. Um, and, well, speaking of people and things being separated like Roger and Lyra, let's get into the separation that's happening at Bolvangar. We see demons that have been caged. Um, oh, that was the worst image for me of the whole episode. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was... Because it's sort of... It's almost like, you know, when your pet has to go to the vet and they have to stay overnight mm. and they're in a cage. Yeah, there was just that pan of all the yeah, I mean, sort I think, of unconscious. Well, there was one that was just hitting its head in the corner. Just horrific. Um, if I was a child, I wouldn't be having nightmares for sure. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, this whole, this is a Sunday afternoon, like evening, prime time. Like festive. It's like eight o'clock, so it's probably the time you'd sit down with your whole family. Um, it feels like it's like the Doctor Who slot, which I know is, like, I guess, a, is a scary show, but this is horrific at times. But I, I, also, I also like the idea that, it, you know, it's not treating children like they're idiots. It's giving them a real... It's giving them enormous things to enormous think about. things to grapple with, and yeah. I think children are—they're definitely able to. Mm. Yeah, well, um, Pullman says that the the best way to get children to read is to tell them that they're not allowed to read oh, something. Oh, for sure, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, treat them like grown-ups. Don't Give... talk to them as though they're babies. 
They have yeah. to learn these mm-hmm. things. Yeah, and yeah, this this is. I I did come to these texts late, and I wish I'd come to them earlier because mm-hmm. going to a Catholic school, this is exactly the kind of thing that I'd kind of wished was sitting in my rucksack in year eight and nine. Um, it it wasn't, but I I came to it, and I'm, I I love it for when I found it. Um, but the idea that this separation will free generations from the tyranny of sin as I'm there studying my Mark's gospel. (laughs) But just what is it? What is it about? Okay. So in that sense, is a demon the id? Is a demon, is your demon the thing that, you know, it's desire and Mm. it's, you know, hot headed passion and anger. So many questions. Yeah. Um, well, we we jump slightly ahead here, um, where mi- Mrs. Coulter um, and and Lyra confront each other about dust, um, which Lyra is of course investigating. And Mrs. Coulter does say, "Dust is not a good thing. Grown-ups are infected by it. Puberty and demons let dust in." I mean, I'm five books deep in this, and I've still not got a strong foothold on what dust really is um mrs and... coulter needs to go to therapy <laughs> <laughs> but i think we we certainly i'm I'm glad it's being kind of put out in words like that for mm. like that if you are 13 14 you are you're going to know what those words mean and you're going to going to know what they can relate to um like there's been hints about what lyra's destiny might be and how that could tie to the end of fate and things like that um and it's certainly got parallels to the story of Adam and Eve and um, that this point in her life reflects that point of knowledge um, and self-awareness. But gosh, <laughs> it's bit, as you say, Louis, it's enormous stuff for, for mm. kids to be watching. It's and, a, but um, it's big stuff for us as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm, I hope that they kind of... They do leave it open because I think Pullman does not like tick off what dust is because that's not the point. Mm. Like if you look at so many religious texts, so much of their interpretation comes from being relatively obtuse mm. that you can interpret them how you like and we can take dust to be different things for different readers and hopefully people will get that from the tv show as well because i was thinking that dust at the, at this point my understanding is that maybe it's the energy that passes between people mm-hmm. but then i mentioned that to you and you're like oh, that's such a simplistic way of thinking about it no no no, no that, that's not that's not that's not what i said you said something like that no i said like in the in the Oh, that's the obvious way. No, I did not say it. that either. I'm <laughs> saying that's that's like that's the scientific route. Yeah. That the the show and the books give us is that the, like they are it's the Rusakov field. They are mm-hmm. literally mm. something there. So yeah. you, like I was saying, you're right, Louis. That is literally what what it is. Yeah. It does exist, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's there in life and in like people. Like right now, we're sitting in a triangle, and there must be dust. Flowing Flow. between us, such Flow a dusty to... room. Yeah, yeah, it is actually quite dusty. I need um, to Hoover. But, yeah, <laughs> I mean, who's to say where the, where the dust may flow? Um, maybe that's one more for Dune fans. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, that's another podcast. Yeah, 
But yeah, we, we've kind of skipped forward there to Mrs. Coulter and her conversations about dust. But let, let's go back a bit um, and talk about uh, Lyra being captured, taken into one of these demon cages. There's the threat of the guillotine coming down on her and Pan. Um, quite horrible stuff from the Doctor. Um, we see something that was referenced earlier about how one mustn't touch another person's demon. Like, Lyra tries to escape, and mm. uh, the Doctor, played by Amit Shah, who seems familiar. Yeah, uh, so he's in everybody's uh, new favourite Christmas film, Last Christmas, uh, playing estate agent, and uh, and he has a lot of roles like that in, in British uh, TV shows and cinema, starting in Casualty, Holby City, and I think he's been in Doctor Who, he's Torchwood, all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, you, you see him in a lot of British films at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's quite fun. You could see him in the cinemas, go home, see him on uh, on the show. Um, yeah, he's got... Uh, it was sort of bugging me for the first five minutes, like, I've seen you recently, where was it? Mm. And then I was just like, Last Christmas! Which is the only <laughs> time anyone will ever say that film's name like that <laughs> um well i i thought oh, is he gonna be like the sympathetic doctor that we're gonna uh he's gonna question what's going on but then he i saw him grab pan mm. and i saw him throw pan Nah, mate. Because he, yeah, he feels like he's in the undertow of the. So there's a much stronger force above him who's really driving this sort of a mad scientist type, um, and he's sort of this willing uh, servant to her. And and then and then and then yeah, and then he picks up Pan. I'm like, no, you're dead to me now, mate. He's a wrong The thing that I was wondering about in this episode, you know how with Lyra coming in, you know, I'm Lizzie. Mm. Mrs. Coulter is searching for her. Mm. Surely she would have put out some sort of notice. She would have <laughs> sent a big, long email. Have you seen this girl with a photo of her? To the station. Mm. Surely they would know that it was her. I just well, feel like it's so far away. Maybe. Like it, yeah. I don't think yeah. Mrs. Well, Coulter expects her to even be able to... Yeah, Mrs. Coulter last saw her in London. Yeah. Or, well, she would have known that she was on Moving one of the Egyptians. boats, mm. yeah. but no more than that. Um, but yeah, you know, just pop it in the WhatsApp between all, your <laughs> go- ob- all the gobblers. Yeah. Um, just like Group keep an chat. eye out for my daughter. <laughs> oh no, no, she's definitely not my daughter. That's no, fine. Um, <laughs> yes. So she she is caught, and that's there's a great moment because we 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 missed Mrs. Coulter last week. We, we did said miss that, her. and we get some great Mrs. Coulter and Lyra action in mm. this one. Which I again, love that scene where yeah. she comes in to the girls' dormitory, mm. and Lyra is hiding under the bed. Mm. The upper body strength on that girl is <laughs> yeah, impressive. really, really tense. Like she's told she has to hide under the bed, but then pull herself up in case I they inspect I underneath the that. bed. Well, there was a deleted scene with Father Coram's gym boat. Uh, <laughs> and Lyra she's just there, been, like yeah, reps. Swole is the goal, size is the prize. <laughs> yeah. She's been on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, Mrs. Mrs. Coulter steps in just at the right moment. She has a bit of a hero moment because she does stop Lyra from being cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and between these panes of glass and metal, uh, there is finally this quite horrible but emotional and intense reunion between the two of them. And uh, I've, I've mentioned the way that Ruth Wilson can deliver lines a few times on this show already, but just the way that she just says Lyra is mm. so good because that she ha- does have such conflicting emotions about her daughter. Mm. And she needs to give us some sense of true emotion and regret and sadness about the relationship with the daughter, but also balance that with 
making sure that we don't fully trust her as well. Yeah. Because this should be an honest and frank conversation about love between yeah. a parent and a daughter. But do you believe it for a second, either of you? I really liked how when Lyra was in the... What is this machine called? The Sever- Severer? Well, like the guillotine demon cage yeah. device. Um, if I was Lyra, I would have gone straight in like, do you know who I am? Straight away. But it really isn't. She waits until the very last minute mm. to shout out, Mother. And that moment is so powerful. But I didn't know whether I should feel that there is, you know, there's a, a mother and daughter reunion or whether this is Lyra again just being manipulative, that she can use her her newfound status as the daughter of Mrs. That, Coulter. To me, that's what it was. That yeah. This, Lyra still sees her as evil, but she knows that it this is, this is my way to yeah. get out. Um, that she, she is really only doing that as a last resort, and mm. she is not seeing her mother and going, Mother, I'm Mommy. so happy to see you. No, but the, the, the joy of the show is you're sort of, at that moment, you're on such this emotional high, you're like yes of course i believe it and he's like no this is lyra she's really really smart and she does not like this woman um she's only doing this to get out of you know certain death uh from 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 that so I, that scene was incredible like it was such high drama i think this episode had like really amazing peaks of high drama um it's it's a really great episode to be talking about yeah uh, there's a lot like of, sort of climaxes like here episode nine of game of thrones level drama yeah yeah, yeah. Endgame sort of level yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. But I also I I loved the choice of the word mother. Because mm. you're a big Darren Aronofsky fan. Oh god, don't <laughs> even. But um, just it's a, it was it's a loaded word. Mm. Well, Lyra's never said that word before. Exactly. She's never known a mother, and yeah. and when she found out, she despises that woman. <laughs> yeah, because it's it, mother is a it's a distant. It's not a really an affectionate term, is it? No. Um, and she oh, she does kind of play her hand with the spy fly trick, oh. which is a great little bit of payoff. Um, with the, the spy fly that was tracking Lyra, set by Mrs. Coulter, that Lyra had, then has trapped in a tin that she then gives back to her her own thing that ultimately destroys her, gives Lyra an opportunity to escape, and then we have that great moment on either side of the metal door where they're just screaming at each other yeah and you know that we you know when someone says god you're really like your mother and it's an annoying thing <laughs> <laughs> i felt that moment uh, i know it was um i i get really worried about the alethiometer and and any other sort of things lyra might have on her person because at that point, she's often changing her costume. Mm. Um, and at this point, she's been stripped down and then is made to put like a boiler suit on. Mm. you're like, where's all of her trinkets and the where alethiometer? Did she, where had she... Like, surely what? they would... How did she smuggle that alethiometer through the, you know, processing Yeah, maybe that's stage. not something that we should interrogate too much. <laughs> but it just let... made me think about it. Like, yeah. oh, no, why is she hidden it? Is there... And I was like, what happens in the book? What happens in the book? Um, but then, yeah, that amazing reveal, that payoff from something that happened like two episodes ago mm. with the Spy Flies. Uh, again, like genius uh, show writing there from Jack Vaughan, like using all of these things he's got in play uh, for sometimes, you know, a slightly more sustained payoff. Uh, yeah, it was beautiful. That was like a chef's kiss moment yeah. uh, there. <laughs> and, well, the, the Spy Fly... Uh, allows Lyra to then go and set off the fire alarm, get all the kids out. They're back in their snowsuits. So um, she's been busily planning an escape. 
Yes. Um, and she's coordinated with Roger to go and get the kids who have been separated to try and organise them to come out as well, even though they're just kind of sitting spectrally on the edge of their beds counting, um, mm. which is all very creepy. But and but he does manage to get them out. And there is this fantastic battle within this kind of labyrinth of polished concrete and snow, which doesn't look like it's going too well. In Of course, there is a late arrival from our boys and our witches <laughs> <laughs> or witch you said to me it's just seraphina mm. yeah i think maybe you probably know better than me jake in the book it is witches but in the mm. show we only see the one witch yes uh, maybe for budgetary reasons <laughs> <laughs> well also looking cool as well yeah um, yeah louis you you did say that you you thought this was multiple witches um but yes it, it's seraphina Picala who's maybe had some Quicksilver from the X-Men uh, crossover talent here and manages to tear through all the soldiers trying but to defend can't, the base. But we can't, like, we've skipped over the fact that Marcosta is a total badass yes. in this scene. Mm-hmm. You love Marcosta. I really, yeah. I, I so what really, does she get up to? She just, you know, she saves the day. Mm-hmm. We think hope is lost and then she pops up with her, with her gang. Yeah. Well, this is it. Um, and she takes some revenge because she's angry. Mm. Well, this is this is different to the books. The um, like everyone really is a late late arrival. It is uh, Lyra, like Lyra and the kids generally lead the escape, mm. um, and everyone else comes a bit later. Um, but it, it it is a good battle, um, and it's a, it's a great aerial threat to have a polar bear just <laughs> looming over everyone mm. that can just jump in and tear people apart. Um, and of course, Lee Scoresby uh, unleashes his his rifle and takes down um, some of the I, I believe they're Tartar soldiers. But I I don't know I I don't know if I'm in a funny place with guns in kids or what could be kids shows at the time. And I know, I know Lee is a cowboy and mm. there's a later scene that's pretty pistol heavy as mm-hmm. well. And it like he is very much a cool character. And it's frustrating to watch these scenes and think, oh, yeah, that is really cool. But then having to balance that with, I, I'm not so keen on lots of guns, cool gunplay on a Sunday night show. Yeah, mm, It's a funny one. Even in the book, I think it's kind of weird because they're not all, it's not like a, a gunny culture in, mm. in, in this world, but he is clearly a cowboy. That's his thing, yeah. this cinematic trope. And the Egyptians sort of fight with hand-to-hand combat. Um, you know, again, Mark Oster you know, breaks someone's neck um, with a bare hand, you know. like So there, there's all these different fighting styles in there. Um, but yeah, he does sort of stand out a little bit. But his timing is superb. I thought the... Uh, how would the show raise the stakes during the fight? Okay, the kids are just willing to make a run for it on their own. With Lyra as their leader, that'll be fine. Um, and then you start to see people sort of infiltrate the base. And like, oh, it's cool, some G- Egyptians are here. At least Gorsby's here. Where's Yorick? Oh, yeah, of course, in <laughs> the corridors with some, no they roof. Have, they have some <laughs> good banter as well. Yorick and Lee, they, they mm. are such a good double act. Mm-hmm. They sort of remind you that they're this team, you know, they existed before this story and, and there's some nods back to, you know, your shooting's not as good as it used to be and all that sort of <laughs> stuff, uh, which is really nice to hear. Yeah, um, it's it's a good final battle, yeah, and it's a, it's a good way of using that location, as you say, Sam. Um, we should briefly mention another location, which is probably the most jarring mm. uh, part of this episode, not from... 
uh, kind of narrative perspective, really. Um, it's not shocking or anything, but it's just weird that we have this one scene of what's happening in our world as well, because everything feels very contained to mm. Bolvangar and the events around I it. I wish it had just been a fully Bolvangar episode. Yep. Yeah, like, could it not have waited? What? So we cut away like halfway through. It's just one scene as well, isn't it? In, yeah. In, in it our seemed world. out of place and yeah, jarring. And we just see it's just a very like low key domestic scene. Like, People Will are sleeping. Will <laughs> is watching BBC News. He's watching BBC iPlayer. It's a plug for BBC iPlayer. That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> uh, contractual obligation. They've got to plug it. But we do get this amazing reveal uh, of, a, of a character we've only so far seen in static form. Oh, that's true. Uh, moving and, and talking. Yeah. Um, this is, of course, uh, John Parry, uh, played by Andrew Scott. And he's doing a BBC News interview prior to him leaving. Uh, to Alaska and perhaps the world altogether. Um, and yeah, we just see Will watching that. He does mention that one of the things he would want to be taking on a journey like this is Marmite. Great, pro that. But then also mentions specifically in a plastic jar, which is just such an odd detail to have written also, in. Also, the plastic bottles of jars of Marmite are crap. You have to squeeze them. Yeah, and you can't get all the Marmite out. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I if this guy's lighter. really into Marmite... <laughs> Why would he not want the glass? One? And it's, I suppose, it's more durable to take in plastic. Maybe yeah, as a survivalist, maybe actually the plastic you could use for more things than the glass. Because I think like, the squeezy mm. marmite is a different formula, but that is again a different podcast. Yeah, it's yeah. a weird detail uh, yeah. to have in there. I agree. It sort of takes you out of the show. <laughs> <laughs> what is the best container for marmite? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, See, we're really sure. getting into the big questions <laughs> that his dark materials <laughs> is, is about. Yeah. yeah? Um, but yeah, just just a bit odd to divert for that. Um, and yeah, I, I think the, the, the pacing and structure on this one for that reason and, uh, for another one I'll go into now is just a little off because there is, as you say, Louis, like episode nine of Game of Thrones mm. levels of events happening in this episode and drama. And I feel like when the escape eventually does happen and the camera pans up to the sky, I thought, oh, that's the end of the episode, mm. but it's not. Um, we then have what I think is quite a powerful scene actually is the Egyptians taking the kids both their kids and the the separated kids in a procession and if we go back to where the whole season began that this whole adventure was about getting the kids back Mm. the fact that that procession feels more like a funeral march than it does uh, a welcome home is quite tough it is not what we expected that moment to be. Really. It's more horrific than because they nobody knows where the kids are going at the beginning of the show, and it's more horrific than anything anybody in this world had in mind. So I think that show that does a really good job of honouring, you know, just how messed up um, this situation is. But also the goal was to rescue Billy, and they failed in their their main goal. Mm. Uh, there, yeah, um, but they did rescue Roger, and then we start a new adventure with. Lee and Roger and Yorick and Lyra going off in the balloon. Um, to go and find? Well, yeah, to go and find some more polar bears and to go and find Lord Asriel. Yeah, Lord Asriel, um, her dad. Yeah. And as I said, I, I felt like the episode had ended and then we have this. Mm. Um, I think we could... I would have liked to have maybe spent a little bit more time... I know this is going to sound weird. 
more time in the station. Yeah, I, mm. I, I, can, I would absolutely it's agree. such a rich um, setting. Mm. And they've been trying to get here for so long, it means so much in the show. I think and for it to be a, like a yeah. bottle episode in this one location would have been absolutely fine. They uh-huh. need to explore so much stuff. Um, but yeah, it's like little bits here and there, which it, it, it was jarring. And it's quite a long scene mm. um, afterwards. Mm. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's, it's going on a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, if you are reading Northern Lights, Bolvangar is the name of the second of three parts that the book is in. And the events of Bolvangar are the end of that section and so it felt like that's the end of that and then to start part three of a relatively large book and just to give us one scene off that felt quite odd um and i wonder whether that was maybe something that was just had to be figured out in the editing process or something um i think it's interesting that euros lynn is one of the two directors that hasn't directed two episodes Mm. um so everyone else um, has had a pair to work with and I wonder whether that's something that has led to this one feeling like it's a bit more chaotic and a bit more like a few more things have had to be crammed into this one episode it all seemed a little bit easy didn't it all I would have liked a bit more threat yeah you wanted more cutting children yeah yeah why not <laughs> oh, wow um, <laughs> just, you know, just uh, so that the the resolve you feel it more yes yeah absolutely it it, it did feel quick i mean it is only an hour long show and it flies by which is a wonderful thing for us to experience but yeah just to like actually like bed into the psychology of being in this horrible institution uh might have been quite good for your sunday night show with your dinner yeah i guess we're at episode episode six already so yeah i suppose they couldn't have afforded no and we end on a scene with everyone heading out on the plane, as I've mentioned. Um, but there is a guest that joins them. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Serafina shows up and she and Lee have quite an, quite a loaded conversation. You know, Serafina, I think, can tell the future, but she tries, she tends not to actually give uh, too much away. Yeah, the, the knowledge of witches and humans is uh, not, I think, a fair... Yeah. two-way conversation and she basically says lyra is responsible for the fate of the worlds the fate of fate and then she just throws in casually so lee you're then responsible for lyra yeah. so he's feeling the burden of you know having to be the the constant father figure for this person who is gonna be a huge um what's the word player in the fate of the universe okay and let's just say that you've been told that you have to protect the person who will control the fate of the universe and of course that balloon is then attacked by something that i know philip pullman has his name for them but louis you have a a much better name for the beasts that attack the balloon naughty sky monkeys yes it's basically just because i i didn't hear what they were called they do sort of I mean, I know they don't do this when they're making the show, but it sort of feels like they say their name whilst looking away from the mic. It's like, oh no, it's a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> what are they? Oh yeah, the no- naughty, naughty sky, sky monkey. Oh no, it's the naughty sky monkey. <laughs> <laughs> 
just sounds better, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, it, it sounds like one of these alternate names that Spider-Man has to come up with. Yeah. <laughs> it was nice to see the... Because this is the A-team now. We're in yeah. the basket. Mm. We got, you know, these are these are our main crew. And it's nice to see them all working together in this confined space. And they've got a bit of a strategy. You see uh, that, that Lee Scoresby, Yorick relationship. Um, they've clearly fought together in the past. Um, really, you know, they've got a technique. Um, and, and they're working really hard together, which is fantastic. So that was that was quite fun. Uh, that stuff. Although, yeah, it just felt a bit... It was quite small in what is quite a big episode. <laughs> but you know that it seems nice and they're all just... It's the night time and they're asleep. You can just tell that it's, you know, something bad's going to happen. Yes. And, of course, the episode ends with Lyra falling from the balloon. Lee had one job. Yeah, I mean, he like, didn't take it very seriously, did he? He literally Fate. just had it as well. It was a brand new job, still <laughs> shiny, fresh out the wrapper. He will not pass his probation period. Absolutely not. And that, that is where we leave it, and that's where we must leave episode six, uh, the demon cages, um, because it's it's time to, I mean, bring together demons rather than separate them, and we move on to our inner demons. <laughs> Now, Louis, mm-hmm. you are, as we've established, on, 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 you are on a big journey. We've we've got you to Bolvangar so far, perhaps even further on a hunt to figure out what your demon is. Uh, what have you been pondering this so week? Last week, I was a slow Loris mm-hmm. with their cute eyes, but poisonous elbows. This week, um, I have a I have a backstory for my demon for this week. Where we live, uh, there are lots of house cats that just roam free and uh, often in the mornings when I'm having breakfast at the kitchen table I'll be visited by various different cats from the neighbourhood and there is one particular black and white cat who um, visits most uh, regularly and he, f- he first visited us about, it would have been Over aut- autumn last year yeah. and... Um, He's a really nice, sweet-looking looking cat, isn't he? I'm not really a cat person, but he has my... You know, I'm a fan. Um, and we'd just seen A Star Is Born, so we decided to name this cat Brad. <laughs> After Bradley Cooper. Um, and, uh, yeah, so Brad... I'm always pleased when Brad pops up. He sits on the windowsill and just watches me whilst I'm, you know, doing emails or eating porridge. And this week, I had some leftover roast chicken. And I thought, Brad, I'm going to give you some. <laughs> and he was thrilled. And he would not leave my side. And he actually asked to come in through the kitchen door. He asked? Yes, he asked. I can talk to him now. Oh, because he, he's your demon. He's my demon. <laughs> and I let him in through the kitchen door, and he just wagged his tail, if cats do that. <laughs> And was quite happy, and I think maybe it was just the chicken, but I like to think that we had more of a deep... It's dust. Yeah. It's dust. We, what, yeah, experiencing some dust. Wow, I wonder if So Brad... Brad the black and white house cat is my demon for this week. Yeah, that's a good good choice. Sam, uh, you've had a bit longer to ponder on this, going back to being 17, 18, thinking about your demon. I I wonder if Philip Foreman is a cat owner, because I think cats are like your atypical... Like, this is the textbook demon. Um, and I own two cats. I've got two cats, Oscar and Ellie. I uh, hope they're listening now. Um, but they, they <laughs> Oscar watched the TV show with me last night, actually. And then they do have this habit of sort of coming over and hanging out with you. So I think, yeah, cats are a good good demon choice. And they're nicely independent as well. Mm. They can, and they're like a little bit feisty. 
Uh, but you know they're, they're sort of around uh, for cuddles if you want as well which is kind of nice mm-hmm. um, that being said though only two cats I was thinking a demon it'd be really fun to have like a demon that kind of you have to shape your life around a little bit like the character who has I think a dolphin mm-hmm. uh, as a demon in the book um, like if your demon was a tortoise you that's your excuse for everything I'm sorry I'm late tortoise i <laughs> uh, can't be there I, I need to make it seven tortoise and then i would just sort of quite like that and i don't think you ever see a tortoise demon in the books so yeah i'd, I'd quite like to be the first tortoise demon uh, and they're so wise and old so they? wise they and but it's just yeah tortoise yeah. <laughs> I, that's a good one yeah that's good that's really good what would his name be uh i think i'd like i like a bit of alliteration so i don't know maybe like terence or terry Terry, the Terry, Terry Tortoise. Uh, I think that would be quite good. But yeah, just you know, he's coming. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would. It's not me being slow. Tortoise. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, so that is where we must leave it. But uh, of course, you can keep up with all of us on social media. Sam, where can people find you and Terry the Tortoise? Uh, me and Terry can be found on Twitter at Sam underscore Clements or on the Ninety Min Film Fest podcast, uh, which is at Ninety Min Film Fest or Ninety Min Film dot com. Uh, where we talk about films under 90 minutes long. Sadly, not serialized TV shows, because, of course, the whole narrative mm, is actually long. eight hours. Mm. But we are enjoying these bite-sized chunks. Yeah, so, um, uh, if you did manage to sit on your sofa for 60 minutes and think you could maybe handle something with 29 minutes more, then <laughs> that is the show for you. Um, and Louis? You can find me at Louisa Maycock. Wonderful. And of course, I am there as Jake H. Cunningham, uh, where I've still got a handful of goodies left over from Penguin Random House uh, supporting the Book of Dust, uh, if you want a chance to win those. But that is really about it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us as we explore the world and worlds of his dark materials on Dustbusters. Dustbusters is produced by Jake Cunningham. Music is by Dan Yakano, and we are edited by Steph Watts. And the credits are read by me, 